what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, welcome back, Nightmare Success In and Out listeners. It's where you come to hear what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, set yourself free? Well, I have really been excited. I just told Josh Boyer uh, to do this interview because this is one that I happened on to on LinkedIn. I was uh, I was looking at some other uh, – post and Josh had made a comment and then I thought that was interesting comment. And I uh, went to his page and found this New Yorker article. And I got to tell you, I was riveted um, by this article. The article, just to kind of just give you guys a highlight of the article from the New Yorker was called uh, titled stash house stings carry real penalties for fake crimes. So that title caught my attention, and then I was reading about Josh, and it starts, just to give you a quick highlight, Josh was 24 years old and had become an addict on heroin using six six to seven times a day. He needed about $2,000 cash to go to rehab, to get his car fixed for his job. And then Josh met this guy who he'd partied with, uh, who promised to change his life. And he said he'd never have to work again. It was like the golden parachute. The man, Richie, said he was a carrier for the Columbia Drug Cartel. He said he had been cheated by his boss and, and was assembling a crew to rob their stash house. Boyer had never done anything like this before. Dressed in camouflage pants and a black T-shirt, which said police across the front, he paced in the parking lot nervously, thinking, I oh, mean, I got to get, I'm, I should back out of this. Suddenly, snipers appeared on the rooftop, garage doors rolled up, the stash house, ATF rifles pointed at them with a helicopter hovering overhead, dropping grenades. It had been a setup, and the guy, Richie, who had approached Josh, was an undercover ATF agent leading the stash house sting. Josh received 24 years in prison for this. As this setup happened, there was no drugs there. Josh didn't have a, a gun or a weapon. Uh, 24 years in prison, he became a very educated man in the law library, trying to figure out how in the world do I get out of this. 16 years later, President Obama released him on clemency. Josh now works in Washington, D.C. for Stand Together Trust that was founded by billionaire Charles Koch, the champions impactful policy changes or our biggest problems in our communities. I can't wait to unpack all this with Josh. But before we do, and I want to remind everybody, if, you, if you're a fan of the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, review the show. It's such a big deal. So much appreciate it. Before we get into all that, show sponsor, Auto Plaza Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple of weekends walking car lots looking for a car? Then you spend four to five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's kind of like a trip to the dentist. 
And I'm not talking about about dentists because Eddie Logan's a good friend of mine. It's a dentist. If you needed good dentist, go out to O'Fallon and find him. Well, there's a better way. Take away all the pain and hassle of getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They're your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. They also offer you warranties and financing. It's all full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Auto Plaza Direct. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Josh Boyer, welcome in. Thank you for being here. Appreciate you having me. So um, I got to tell you, I, and I think you and I, we, we spoke – my, and my wife, Julie, heard a little bit of, of, of our conversation because we were driving up to see my daughter in Chicago and, and uh, we finally connected on the phone. But man, what a journey you've been through. And you've been out, is it six or seven years? In between. Um, I would say it's, it's close to six and a half at this point, but yeah. Oh, okay. Because I got out at the end of 2016 and I think you got out in 2017. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think one of the interesting things that I was reading about that I thought was, I mean, your whole story is fascinating, but you know, as a kid, you seemed like you weren't really a kid that was wanting to get into a lot of stuff. You were fishing kind of minding your own business, but you were kind of attracted to the kids that, got into trouble that that were, you know, the, the, that, that had a lot going on that you were always asked, Hey, you want to go Josh? And he'd say, yeah, why not? Is that, what was your life like growing up? That's accurate. Um, fishing, spending a lot of time outdoors, uh, grew up, uh, for the first part of my life in like an extremely rural area. So like the outdoors, fishing, bars. I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, like the hustle and bustle that comes with the city. There weren't a whole lot of other outlets besides, you know, kids that didn't otherwise have a whole lot of like structured activities or outlets to do things. And that obviously one thing leads to another, you're playing mailbox baseball or, you know, you're doing just shenanigans in the neighborhood. Seems harmless. <laughs> At first. Yeah, yeah. You know, so slippery slope, they, they call it though. So mom and dad, siblings, what was, what, how was that all in your world? It was good. Um, dad came to, you know, every football, every baseball, every basketball practice. My stepdad, um, I should add, mom worked uh, two jobs most of the time growing up. 80s, you know, kid of the late 70s, grew up in the 80s, latchkey kid. Parents were working. We pretty much raised ourselves in yeah. rural northwestern Illinois and, Definitely had its advantages, but I guess, you know, in terms of supervision, maybe I could have used a little bit more. <laughs> well, I always think it's funny because when we were growing up as kids, I'm 56 years old, and I, I think about, you know, we just left the house, and we rode our bikes, and sometimes we'd ride our bikes a long ways away. As long as we got back when it was time to come home, nobody asked any questions. Different world, man. Different world entirely. I, I, I don't... I have this conversation with younger colleagues all the time and it's like, I don't know if we've just sort of embraced this hypervigilance that comes with having access to more information, you know, as parents, I've got an 11 year old and 13 year old now. And 
I really can't see of dreaming under the circumstances of actually living, you know, close to DC of letting, giving them that degree of freedom and yeah. feeling comfortable about it. But, um, grew up in a different time, different generation, a different place. And that was pre- the way you described was pretty much my upbringing in a nutshell. So as things progress, Josh, it sounds like you were in sports. Everything was pretty normal. School was pretty normal for you, I guess. Nothing good, good student. Good student, but towards the end, like uh, junior high um, into high school, sorted started sort of like drifting away from being more like focused on academics. I, I did have the luxury of uh, my aunt was, you know, a professor in college. So I guess whatever academic strengths that I sort of like carried into what I'm doing now, the foundation for that was definitely came from her. And she yeah. was, you know, like a really present force in my life and sort of like emphasizing the need to, you know, read books and, you know, sort of like educate yourself and, you know, expose yourself to different things. But um, the teenage me probably could have used a little bit more uh, listening to that rather than uh, the path that I chose. But So talking about the path that you chose, what, what, where did it start on the slippery slope to where, as it read in the article, it sounded like you were kind of around some people that had things going on and some of it was drugs. Yep. And they just kind of say, hey, Josh, you want some? And you went ahead with it, but you ended up getting into it. Yeah, I I think at one point, and not to say that, you know, it was just purely recreational at that point, but just sort of like got into the rave scene in the early 90s in South Florida. Um, the other side of my family is from down there. Like my dad's side of the family is from, you know, like Bradenton, St. Pete, Tampa area. Um experimented with ecstasy started you know smoking pot you know occasionally did coke here and there but um i think the real problem for me was heroin and sort of like getting exposed to heroin and that's when life definitely took Took a turn turn. for me and it wasn't that oh i just want to do this it became more of like oh my gosh you know i actually like have to do this to feel normal now. yeah to normalize how you felt you had to do it and you were, did you, I guess, and I've talked to so many different people that have fallen into that. Did you know that you were Josh when it happened or was it just, yeah. yeah. And like happened to see back then. And I don't necessarily know that this experience rings true for everybody, but in, in that particular area of Florida, like Tampa, there was heroin. Heroin was a similarly like small scene. There wasn't the pharmaceutical bone with Oxycontin and everything really hadn't taken off yet to the extent that we sort of saw with the pill mills right. and everything else that came later. But I just happened to know some of the people um, that were like in this particularly small circle started dealing like small quantities, just enough to sort of like support my addiction mm-hmm. and, um, make rent and be able to, you know, take care of necessities. Wasn't trying to be, you know, a millionaire, wasn't trying to be super flashy or anything like that. And, but at the same time, it, that, you know, if there was any sort of ebb and flow in supply, you know, you'd have to deal with sickness, you'd have to deal with, you know, X, Y, Z. So yeah, that's, 
leading up to this point, that's kind of the situation that I found myself in. It wasn't necessarily constant. It wasn't steady. So there were those periods where you're just kind of like, oh my gosh, I really need to make uh, a change. I got to make a change. Well, and at that time, you know, like when you were around 22, 23, 24, you, you, you knew you wanted to make a change. You knew you wanted to go to rehab. You needed money. Uh, You had the car that, you know, probably wasn't reliable that you needed for your job. Can you walk us through how this whole nightmare happened for you? Because I've, I've read pieces of it, but I know coming from you, there's always a different uh, angle to that. It's really a bizarre thing. So I had a friend and who, when I say a friend, a guy that I had sort of like partied with, it wasn't somebody that like we played baseball or whatever decent enough guy, but we had had a falling out like a year, year and a half earlier. Um, I had moved, got a place in Tampa rather than, you know, on the, like the St. Pete Clearwater side of the bridge. Um, my girlfriend had switched jobs. She had actually got a job that was right close to a bar that I used to hang out with, with this friend. And it was around the holidays, started feeling sentimental. I've sort of like driven past this bar that was like this common hangout number of times. And been like, hey, look, I wonder if, you know, so-and-so is still there or whatever. So I drop her off at work, driving right back down past this bar and decide to stop in there. Wouldn't you know it, these folks are there. So almost within a week, maybe a week, week and a half of sort of like reassociating with this circle of friends, um, I come on, you know, this, meet these folks, not necessarily involved in that circle, but that they had started hanging out with in the interim and, um, started hearing, you know, conversations about this opportunity, you know, it was 25 to 50 kilos, a whole, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of drug money. And it didn't take longer than maybe a day to, you know, to sort of get wrapped up in this conspiracy that they had already been targeted for. I found out later for weeks when I sort of came into this. I think, you know, it's, it's such a, when you read about this, it's such an unknown, you know, people who are just going along in their lives. You wouldn't think that, that the government target, I mean, government targets people all the time. This is a little bit different. They're targeting people to corrupt them, and they're seeing if they can create a group of people to show up so they can arrest them for something that's not even there. And, and it's, it's like a movie, but it's, it's so and, – and then as you, as you go deeper into this, you find out that this was happening all over the country – Eventually it would, but um, I, I will add that at the time, this was somewhat, and like beginning in 2001, this was a somewhat new experience. Um, not sure like how much you dug into the history, um, Brent, about like sort of like the origin of like how these investigations came to be, but um, they originated in South Florida where I was at. Um, the Cocaine Cowboys, their heyday, um, rival drug gangs sort of like ripping off each other's stash houses, which was nowhere even remotely close to what I was connected to or these other, right. you know, the, the folks, not even. So there was a purpose, but the purpose has sort of morphed into, 
hey, look, we can make cases. This is easy. Not a lot of overhead. We can show that we're efficient. We can get promotions. Yep. Yep. So when this, when this all starts to happen and are you within this group is, is Richie the undercover uh, ringleader of this? Does he make direct contact to you? No, less than 24 hours before I get arrested is the only time I've ever, ever had contact with him. And the folks that I was involved with only had limited contact with him. And here's the irony. So they have an informant sell a gun that the ATF gives to him to my co-defendants. Then when he's in need of cocaine later on, he comes back and says, hey, look, I know somebody will buy that gun. Can you go ahead and sell it? I'll give you another one. Um, they took the same gun that ATF had given him to, to begin with to my co-defendants, brought them, connected them with an agent who this guy was an informant and sold the same gun back to them. But the irony is that they had already committed an armed bank robbery with this gun that the ATF had given them. Wow. Wow. So when this all transpires and it's talked about, you know, Hey, we're going to hit this, you know, stash house and you know, these they've cheated me. And did you, so you knew some of the people that were involved that were going to be part of this assembled group, but you had never done this before. No, nothing even like remotely close. And um, the crazy thing was I really didn't have an idea in terms of like the extent of what these guys were involved in. Because I mean, remember just like a week and a half ago, I had re, you know, like united with friends that I'd had. And these are somebody that just sort of like came into their right, lives. Extension of, it's, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like on the periphery sort of thing. It, I think that's pretty consistent with the way that a lot of these cases sort of develop when you mm-hmm. look 20 years in the future with what ATF, DEA and FBI were doing with these sting operations. Yeah. And, and really worried on like who they were targeting. It's just like push this information out of it, out there, however it develops, bring these, you know, targets in and then guys that would come in at the last minute. That was like, you know, synonymous with these stash house things. Yeah. Well, let's walk, let's walk into the day that it happened because it sounds like that you, as this was going to happen, you're really having second thoughts. Like, man, what am I doing? You know, you've, you've gone this far. And, you know, I remember you talking about, or in the article of, you're kind of pacing back and forth nervously, you know, you're dressed in the stuff you're thinking, maybe, but maybe I just, maybe I've made the wrong decision. Maybe I'm backing out. And about that time, is how did it all happen, Josh? What explain the day to me, Mike? So the night before, which is granted the same day that I'd ever come in contact with any of the ATF agents, met these people, got the full scope of what was supposed to happen. I'm having a discussion with these guys who I just met um, at my house. My girlfriend at the time, who I didn't know at the time, had overheard what we were talking about, and she was not pleased with it at all. She was not happy. Later on, after this conversation sort of took place, I got confronted. Um, she your was, girlfriend? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that kind of sort of like really started weighing on me at that point. And like, she, she's freaking out thinking that it's like 
and the world scenario, which she was right. She was right. (laughs) She was right. You know, her whatever. Women's intuition. Exactly. I mean, there isn't a thousand times that I haven't thought about like, hey, look, we split up. We, you know, haven't talked and stuff like that. But if I would have listened to her, I would have been, you know, way better off than, than I am now. So what time of day did it happen? What's that? What time of day did it happen? Uh, the arrest, or yeah, when when they went to this this the fake stash house and and the, no, we never even went to the stash house. We you were in the parking a, lot. We went to a storage facility that the agents told us that we were supposed that we could to store meet up. ours and their portion of it. They never even gave us the address of the stash house, obviously because it didn't exist and the drugs didn't exist. People didn't exist. Right. They just needed but, to have you in a grouped up place. Yeah. Yeah. And you know how, st- you know how storage units are. There's like rows upon rows of garage doors. So they took us into the middle of that. They had us from both points on the roof that had agents and all these doors on both sides of us. We pulled up trucks in between these, this really narrow row of like garage door after garage door. And it's kind of like you were in a Canyon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah like rifles Western. down at you. Yep. What were you thinking, Josh? At the time, I had no idea. I had no idea. So, I guess being naive as I was back then, you're, I'm thinking like, look, I didn't sell anybody anything. I didn't have anything. Nobody was trying to buy anything from me. I'm like maybe it's something that these guys did. I got caught up in the middle. I'm just going to let it take its course. And yeah. then I'm going to get, I'm going to get set free. Right. Yeah. Misidentified person at the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. yeah I, I was wrong. <laughs> so what happens next? You know, these, the helicopter, the grenades, the people with rifles, everybody, you know, is, I forget how many guys you were with that they arrested, but what, what happens next? two other guys and then three other guys that were supposed to be um, part of this group ended up staying up all night and like partying with strippers. And the guy that was with me sort of like excluded them. Like, Hey, we don't want some guy that's been up to three o'clock in the morning. We're going to change the meeting spot. We're going to like meet with these guys separately. And at that point, the plan involved all these people. And we really didn't even know if we had the capacity at that point, you know, with the wee hours in the morning up until like eight, nine o'clock in the morning when we got busted, yeah. um, that this was even going to happen. But of course, ATF's like, Hey, well, look, at least show up, you know, you can look at it, see how it goes. And then, you know, we do this twice a month. We make this, we make this pickup twice a month and we drive up to New York. If you guys won't want to do it this time. You can do it, you know, in a few weeks, but yeah. We ended up getting arrested anyways. Where do they take you? So the jail that I got taken to was like the old jail in Tampa. It doesn't even exist. It, they closed it like three or four years after uh, we ended up getting tried and convicted. Sitting there uh, the same day, I had three counts against me. The first count, um, the judge, the judges read now the first count is mandatory minimum of 10 years, maximum of life. The second count, which is for these guns that I didn't have that my co-conspirators had consecutive mandatory to count one, 10 years to life. 
So I know I'm at least looking at 20 years, a minimum of 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then on the third count for the same guns that they charged me in count two for, it was zero to 15 years. So I pretty much, uh, I'm like in a state of disbelief at this time. I'm like, okay, well, look, this count one is based on this quantity of drugs that they're saying. They're saying kilograms of drugs that you didn't they have. admitted didn't exist, that I didn't have, that they never had. And then these these guns, I never had the guns. Fingerprints were never found on the guns. I'm like, this is going to be some mistake. I'm still going to get out of it. Well, until I sat there withdrawn from heroin, sat there for like, you know, two months. And my lawyer said, hey, look, no, there isn't there is no uh, golden parachute, as you said earlier, like out of this situation. You're you're in this. They're not going to dismiss charges. Wow. And and I, it, it gives you chills up your spine when you it's recounted in the story about when the uh, the case trial starts and this Richie uh, goes to uh, be a witness and he's good. And, and you start realizing that he's so good. He's convincing everybody in the jury that we're the scum of the earth and he saved the day and he's doing God's business. He really is. And um, they made it known to me in no uncertain terms from day one that regardless of what the truth was, that their story, the way that they presented this was going to be what mattered. And that if I didn't agree to play ball and like do exactly what they wanted me to do, that I was going to be crushed under the weight of this. And of course, you know, 23 year old me at the time, I'm, I'm you know, there's this state of disbelief. I'm like, Hey, look, you know, this just something isn't fucking right about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all wrong. And, um, are your parents, the other thing I was wondering when I was reading all this, like, are you just off on an island, Josh, or are your parents involved? You know, what, no, what's, what's no, going my, on? My were involved. My parents went back and forth. Um, they're living in Northwestern Illinois at the time, driving, driving down. And at first my mom's like, you're not telling us something, Josh, something else happened. There's no way, no that way this, this could happen. Right. Giving me is going to result in what, what the consequences and stuff that they're telling me about. You need to be honest with us. You need to tell us what happened. Yeah. Well, that the sort of the disbelief and like questioning in terms of like my version of the events after she got the chance to talk to the lawyers, show up for a few court dates, she was convinced. And she's like, there's no way that's entrapment. There's no way that they can do that to you. She's like, this, this, this isn't right. So she was wrong. I was wrong. Yeah. Well, the other thing that, you know, it's so frustrating as you read through all of this kind of stuff. It is entrapment, but for some reason in the legal world, as you later find out entrapment, it's a terrible argument and you have to figure out all kinds of other angles to go about it. But before we get there, you get to trial. Um, how was your attorney in this? What was that good? Or did it so matter? Was, did it even matter? No, it, it was bad. And I mean, in retrospect, I guess the me sitting in a prison sort of thinking about this, I probably could have told you that it mattered. Um, I don't know. But so I had a lawyer months and months and months into the case. 
um, all of a sudden, this guy decides to go to the government, say that when we were in a cell, like apart from each other, that I told him something about the case. He apparently had the same lawyer that I did. This lawyer conflicts out. Another lawyer gets put in there, and his agreement was that he had to be ready for jury selection in a little over two weeks, and he could not ask for a continuance. So I had this lawyer two and a half weeks before. When uh, even had any that complex federal criminal jury trial yeah. or you know exposed to life penalties on the first two counts and a fifteen year sentence. Any, you know, lawyer worth assault, judge worth assault at this point would tell you that that's not uh, the type of situation the Sixth Amendment envisioned for effective assistance of counsel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you get into this thing, the trial goes way sideways, you know what's all stacked against you. Uh, and then the other thing, too, as you find out, is that these judges were really boxed in. They, the way that the government would bring that to them. They were boxed into these mandatory minimums. What was your thought the day that you got sentenced? I mean, you've gone through this. It's been a nightmare. Now you're standing there sentencing, which is the worst day you can have because you have no idea where it's all going to come down. What, what were your thoughts? I thought it was over. I mean, the, the, the way that the pre-sentence report came back, which back then before the guidelines were advisory, they were mandatory back then before Booker. Um, I was looking at, you know, 27 to 30 some years. And I figured that I was going to get every bit of that when I, when I went in there. Um, luckily, uh, the judge sort of expressed his reservations with, I guess just me, what he thought about my character and just what the sentencing guidelines were calling for. And he did the only thing that he could under the circumstances was depart from one criminal history category to the, to the next one below it, saying that it was overrepresented because I'd only had minor offenses prior to that mm -hmm. and gave me the bottom of the other range, which was 24 years. And even though I fought it for years and years and years, um, when President Obama became um, president, decided that DOJ was going to do his clemency initiative, one of the factors in there for granting clemency was that the judge, you know, under mandatory guidelines had expressed reservations about what the guidelines called for. And now that they were advisory and judges were sentencing folks based on discretion that they had, um, that was sort of like what got me back in the game later on. That's interesting. Just just the comments from the judge played into the clemency part of it. Well, he did write a letter, too. I, it I, I remember uh, that, yeah. Yep. Which would have been huge. It was huge. Um, you get sent off from from trial to the uh, federal prison of uh, Pekin, right, in Illinois? Yep. Uh, what's your... What, what's your world like, your thoughts like entering into that world, knowing I'm not going to be here for a week or two. I'm going to be here for a long time. I thought that a lot of anger, a lot of rage, but the one thing that I quickly found out and had sort of like known from being in Illinois, that Illinois is gangs. Any, anywhere close to Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, it's gangs. 
um, I had aligned myself with people, however briefly that was, that got me in that situation and didn't have trust in my lawyers, didn't sort of have faith in the advice that I had been given up to this point and had already started doing research, had already started like familiarizing myself with, you know, entrapment with these statues and stuff that I was convicted of and had been committed to learning everything that I could about the law um, by myself so that I couldn't have a lawyer or somebody that, you know, had a degree or whatever speak over me and kind of like lawyers explain things to me. Sure. So that's what my path, you know, that's what I saw as my path. Then there was obstacles. There was always, you know, different people trying to pull me into stuff. And I'm like, Hey man, look, I'm fighting my case. I'm busy. I don't care about all the rest of this yeah, stuff. Prison politics. Yep. Well, did you do it like, did that start for you, Josh, immediately when you got there? Is that what you yeah. did immediately? Is I, you went to the law library and said, hey, I'm going to figure all this out somehow, some Six way. To eight hours a day, every day. Well, the interesting part of that is you could do your own thing and say you're who you are because if you become a smart guy on the law in prison, that carries an awful lot of weight as respect because there's a lot of guys that want to know Hey, what about my case? And I didn't really realize that that was the case until later. I mean, I would love to say that, like, I, I had that foresight <laughs> and that I, like, pieced that together. And that was, you know, some, one of the magical ingredients in, in the way that things sort of turned out. But, yeah, um, what I would find out late, what I would find out later was that if you did have that ability, and unfortunately, as you probably know too, Brent, um, Guys in prison don't have the highest degrees of literacy, um, probably didn't have the best representation, especially in these larger cities and stuff where dockets are crowded. So, yeah, more often than not, and I was not, I wasn't a perfect person in prison. I, I definitely don't want to give that impression. Um, I did try to stay on my P's and Q's because I knew what fighting my case meant to me. I knew what the end goal was, but in prison, super volatile, super, you know, a whole bunch of situations that are trip, I guess normal people would consider trivial, but could have real implications getting sent to the other side of the country, yeah. losing your time for little to nothing. Yeah. But I would later find out that being in that position did have its, have its benefits. Yeah, sure. it really did. And like you said, there's a lot of guys, uh, it's like Lewis Reed said, you know, they say that you're, you're trying to get on your second chance. He said, I, I was around so many guys, they never got a first chance. You know, they're just wanting a fair chance. And there's no doubt that you going at it with the passion that you went at it to learn what you learned, uh, you know, I think that's one of the really cool parts of your story. You were able to help people and their cases while you were trying to help yourself, which affected other people's lives. And, you know, it's a pretty incredible thing when you can say, uh, even though it wasn't uh, planned, you, because of what you were doing, you were actually able to help other people's lives by knowing what you knew and, and file petitions and motions to help them in cases. And, you know, it's like most people probably don't know, if you're looking at other people's paperwork, you can get in trouble for that. 
and I have gotten in trouble for it. And I've been the subject of crazy scrutiny, locked up under investigation, stuff confiscated, um, frequent cell searches because they thought that that was the case. And in addition, not just to helping people fight their case, but when you involve, when you get involved in a lawsuit where somebody's suing the prison and suing yeah, the actual Yeah, that's a party. big deal. Yeah, it is. That is a big deal. So there were some cases that came along that actually really affected things overall. Um, was it Leslie McBride? Was Leslie Mayfield. Mayfield, Mayfield. Yep. Can you kind of explain how that, that, because you were part of that, of helping him. In, yeah, in, in, in kind of like on the outside, but um, as it turns out, and I didn't know at the time, but um, Leslie Mayfield would have probably perhaps the best representation that he possibly could have had from any lawyer because the University of Chicago Law School and the lawyers that sort of ignited that spark that changed the entire, you know, uh, demographic in terms of the way that Stash House cases are litigated. Erica Zunkel um, from the University of Chicago Law School and Allison Siegler, Judith Miller, they were his lawyers. Uh, he was coming to me for help. I was looking at the briefs. Um, he would end up getting a reversal from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals because he was in Chicago and getting sent back um, I'd like to take the credit for that, but, um, it, the credit is really due to his lawyers, but Leslie and I spent a, a bunch of time together. Oh yeah. I mean, he, he thought enough of you to give yeah. you that. So get the spark started so that the next step happened, the next step happened. And then it changed every, well, not changed everything, changed a lot. Yeah. And to be honest, he wasn't the only one at the time that was there that had that sort of case. I mean, there was another, um, young, uh, young man who is now, you know, older in his thirties, it was like 21 at the time by the name of Marlon Barnes, who was out of, um, Gary, Indiana, who caught a case. And it's like, we would sit there at the law library table, like every night and just sort of like go over stuff. But yeah. When did you start realizing Josh that you were pretty good at it? I guess um, getting people like evidentiary hearings on their post-conviction petitions, um, getting a GVR order, which is like grant, vacate, review. It isn't like full review by the Supreme Court, but um, figuring out a way with a circuit split and like having a guy that had a direct appeal that his lawyers filed an Anders brief and said that there was no merit to it going in, knowing the case law probably a little bit better than the lawyer had time to pay attention to getting it to sit up there in the Supreme court long enough for them to rule on a favorable case and then remand, uh, the guy's case that I was working on back to the appellate court for a decision. You know, and that's an interesting point you bring up too about attorneys with how they look at those cases that, you know, the way the federal system works is, um, it's all about rushing somebody to a deal you know, somebody to a plea. And a lot of times that attorney's not looking at all the different things that could be helpful, even to reduce their, their plea down. And, you know, you had time to really look at these cases and help these guys uh, where maybe it might be the first time that somebody really looked at it. Yeah. And I mean, then I guess being, being locked up, having went through a negative experience, you know, with trial and everything, you think, oh, well, these lawyers are just, you know, hucksters. They're just... But 
when you sit back, when I sit back and look at it, if I had the number of people, you know, having, you know, worked for a law firm for years now, been out, um, if I had the number of clients that they had, how much time could I reasonably put towards like, sure. what, what would the quality of my output be yeah. in that particular situation? And it's not like those attorneys have a choice, right? They have to, you know, to, to move at that speed. So yeah. in all fairness, I think, uh, I place most of the blame on the system rather than I do on the individual. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, the system has all the, the plays in the playbook and they go chapter by chapter and, and it's not personal, it's, it's business. And they, they, they use the full, I mean, you know, I've had this conversations with several individuals. There's nothing more intimidating you'll ever see in your life than the United States of America versus your name. Yeah. That's a, that's a heavy weight. I mean, it, it's, it, it really becomes real that this is, uh, this isn't going to end up well. So Josh, when did you start thinking and you're going through this, you're helping people, you're probably becoming a known guy. Is Pekin, Pekin was the only place that you were, right? No. You um, went somewhere at, else? Yeah. Uh, Pekin, Coleman, Florida. Okay. Marion, Illinois. Oh, you were in Marion. Butner, North Carolina. Talladega, or Oakdale, Louisiana, and then Talladega, Alabama. Wow. That's a lot of traveling as a prisoner. Yeah. I've been through the Oklahoma City uh, Transfer Center and Atlanta so many times that uh, it, it was crazy. Well, I mean, the thing of it is, is you, you, you don't want to, your, your fear is, is even just to get lost in the system, you know, that you just travel. And, and I remember I had to go up to our civil trial. And even though I was going from Leavenworth to St. Louis, my fear was that somehow I would just get lost in that county jail and they would just ship me to wherever and I wouldn't even know where I was going to be. And it's, it's, it's such a weird thing to have no control and being traveled and shipped places like cattle. It's just a, it's a very weird phenomenon that it's kind of even hard to explain shackled. Yeah. Well, which for me meant a black box chained to the, you know, to the, to the belly chain and everything else, which I think cuts the circulation off in your hands. Every time since I was moved from, trial everywhere it was black box completely and totally shackled even when i made it to a federal prison camp they had to call ahead to make sure that i was not going to the usp at marion but i was going to the federal prison camp at marion because i had a black box order on me wow what what years were you at marion uh camp so my dad was there uh 13 through 15 13 through 15 you might uh you might have known Doug Cassidy. The name does sound familiar. He was old. I mean, he would have been one of the old yeah. guys. Yeah. The name does sound familiar. And there was a ton of guys from Missouri, St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. But he he, he ended up getting septic shock um, and had to go to Barnes Hospital and survived. And then they brought him back. But uh, it was – I can't even imagine getting that sick in prison and then being handcuffed to a bed – and then being put back in prison when you were in a coma for a couple of weeks. I mean, I did the, the, we were just talking about traveling. I, you know, getting sick in prison, 
deathly sick is never anything that somebody wants. And, you know, I can't even imagine that experience, but the, yeah, you guys, you guys were, the, you go, you would have been there at the same time. Cause, uh, I went in January uh, 14th of 2014 and he went in a week later and he was at Marion. Yeah. I had to be there. Yeah. It's kind of wild, small world. I didn't know that until you just said that. Um, so when you get, you get uh, Josh to the point, uh, or I guess, how does it, how did the steps happen to where you think you might have a chance with this new initiative with Obama how does it, how does that all work? Like what, what goes on and what are you doing and what are you thinking? Who's helping you? So I start, so based on Mayfield's decision, I start paying attention to the seventh circuit and there's another group of stash house guys that come out by the name of Kindle, um, published case, um, judge Posner makes a concurring opinion and there's a law review article written by, a, at this time, like a young law professor out of Cardozo Law School named Katie Tinto. And loved sort of like the parallels that she was making. The court sort of relied on um, a lot of the points that she was making at the time, uh, sort of like criticized the stash ousting technique and the sentences in particular. So I'm like, hey, look, you know, I really got to find out, you know, who this lady is. I've got to like make contact. So I reach out to friends that I knew that have gotten out, say, hey, look, can you call, you know, this Professor Tinto and sort of like figure this thing out? Well, she she ended up being like my guardian angel. Um, I ended up getting in contact with her. Um, she had already started taking steps to figure out how we were going to litigate the case being that, you know, I'd already been in for, you know, 13, 14 years at this time. And then, you know, along comes this Obama clemency initiative. And she's like, Hey, look, um, they just announced this. I want to be your lawyer. Um, if you want me to be your lawyer, that's fine. If you don't, whatever, but like, no, uh, (laughs) I want you. Yeah. 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 So still, knowing what I'd known about clemency, it was like, it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. I mean, right. So didn't really put a whole lot of stock in it, had continued to litigate in other areas on my own and like pursue other stuff. But I end up going to the shoe in Marion. I get caught up under an investigation, um, ended up getting a shot, which was later thrown out at a different institution, different yeah. story. But, um, why I was in the hole at Marion, uh, Katie Tinto sent me a letter from my sentencing judge that was sent to President Obama asking President Obama to commute my sentence, um, saying that he didn't really feel that I deserved the time at the, at the initial sentencing, but there, that he couldn't do anything about it. And that he felt that um, what I had served was already more than enough. Right. So even, I still wasn't convinced at that point. <laughs> Honestly, um, I I didn't think, I'm like, you know what, that's great. Um, I was thrilled that, that, you know, my sentencing judge did that, but until the the sheer number of people, which I wasn't in the first group of grants, like the big group of grants that President Obama made, Mm -hmm. but once one, two started happening, I'm like, you know what, hey, I might actually have a shot at this. So what happens next? So in addition to that, um, I had 
um, worked with a bunch of different like professors at different universities on like prison issues, sort of collaborating with them about prison pieces that eventually became law review articles, um, lawyers that I'd sort of like assisted with different stuff and ended up getting results. They had written letters, you know, in support. So, you know, I started like, you know, Hey, look, maybe this is becoming a little bit more realistic. Um, get shipped after I got shipped from Marion out of the hole, went to Butner. Um, the people at Butner actually got ticked off at me because I'd had so many legal calls about clemency and <laughs> this, that, and the other thing that they put me under investigation, no shot, sent me all the way over to Talladega, Alabama. Wow. Then they call me in for a legal call one day and my lawyer can't even talk. She's like crying hysterically on the phone and she can't even really get it out to where I understand her, but she's like, you got it. You got, you got it. it. But you have to go through the RDAP program. And I'm like, I'm happy. But at the same time, I'm like, that's a nine month program. It's just, it's just sick. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you did have to go through the, the RDAP program. So I did, and I successfully went through it, but midway into it. I, I might explain that to people who are listening. That in a, I, We've talked about it on the show before, but for those listening down in Costa Rica, the RDAP is a program, residential drug addict abuse. or alcohol? Residential drug abuse program. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> And it's a nine-month program. For those who uh, have a longer sentence, you can get a year off. For those who have a shorter sentence, they get six months to nine months or whatever. But you, you, you're in your. It's like a cult. You're, you're in your own living area with those people, and you go through that program together. And uh, it's, it's quite a, quite a program. It is, <laughs> to say a, the least. <laughs> quite a program. But I found out that. After, I guess, after lawyers had had clients, because mine wasn't the only sort of conditional grant, but after the language in these conditional grants had sort of been tested and lawyers had sort of like collectively started sharing information, they found out that all I had to do was enroll, but I didn't have to. Oh, <laughs> all you had to do was enroll, but you went through the whole nine months? I could have dropped out, but um, after sort of looking at the special conditions in my judgment commitment order from when I was sentencing, yeah. it was that the probation officer had discretion to order substance abuse treatment, mental health treatment, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm like, look, after 17 years, I want to be done. Yeah, just be, be done. 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 Yeah. I don't want to have to deal with this. If I complete this and it's like right before my release, I've got a great case as to why all the rest of the stuff is unnecessary and that special condition is, you know, right. met on my end. Yeah. Wow. So you, you've finished that. You're, I mean, you're right at the door. What are you thinking about getting out? Because now things have ramped up. You weren't really thinking about it the way that somebody thinks about it that knows that they're getting out. What, what are you thinking about on the other side? I really didn't know. I mean, like, it'd been 17 years. Um, my mom had passed away like three or four years into my sentence. My grandma had passed away just like a couple years right before I got out. Those were sort of like my anchors and the people that I knew that regardless of what their personal situation was that would have space for me, you know, support me and stuff like that. So it's kind of on my own, but just given, you know, just like the, 
the legal stuff that I'd done, um, I had some prospects, I had some, you know, some job opportunities that were waiting on me when I got out. Um, just trying to piece it together. I mean, I really didn't know what was waiting for me on the other side. I like to think that I did at that point, but I, what turned out was super rough adjustment period and really not knowing what was on the other side of the tunnel for me. Well, let's talk about it a little bit, Josh, because I, I think, you know, I think people get really excited about when they talk about people getting out, but I think the flip side of it is, is pe- people really truly don't understand how hard it is to get out. Uh, what what the reentry process is, how you uh, are legally discriminated against because you're an ex felon for having a place to live or a job. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that as far as how you got out and then what you had to do to get your feet, you know, underneath you and feeling more sturdy? Well, the crazy thing was that I had a job waiting on me um, as soon as I got to the halfway house um, that was willing to pay me $50 an hour. That's um, huge. Was it a paralegal job? Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, somebody would be finding you as a paralegal and, and it'd be a golden gift to have Josh Boyer show up at their office and be a paralegal. So the problem was this, that I was in Tampa. The lawyer was in DC. Um, there wasn't like, infrastructure in place at the halfway house to sort of like, Hey, look, we're going to have this guy. He's going to be working remote. Um, the way that Tampa was set up, I wasn't eligible for home detention, strict, home, you know, like pure home detention mm-hmm. for six months. I got I got just shy of a year. So you had to so, stay in there six months in the halfway house. Yeah. yeah. They wouldn't allow me to have a laptop. Um, they wouldn't allow me to go somewhere and just or go home for a certain period of time and just have somebody, even though I had an ankle, they could have had an ankle monitor and known where I was at with GPS. Um, so for the first six months, I had to take a job making $10 an hour working maintenance at a hotel because the Bureau of Prisons wouldn't allow me to have the job. Were you then able to go to the job that you thought you had when you got out? I was when I went to a house arrest. Um, but it's because of probably I had like an army of lawyers that decided that, you know, the, the BOP doing this to me was sort of like fundamentally unjust and yeah. had messed with the residential reentry manager from the Southeast region, the halfway house manager on down. And by the time that that had sort of happened and they'd had to gone through all that stuff, they're just like, Hey, yeah, look, we're going to give this to you. Leave us the F alone. And it's all good. I can't imagine Josh, because I felt like I was jumping in a moving car when I got out. And I, I had a five-year sentence, ended up three years with the RDEP program. And um, I can't imagine 17 years. Like, what what was swimming through your head after 17 years of being away? Well, Aside from gaming, you know, I guess whatever that was in 2000 and like late nineties and having a flip phone that you could t- yeah. you know, like use basic text with, you had to press the number three or four different times to get yeah. the right character to come out of it. I really didn't know how to use technology. Well, technology, new- it's so far advanced. I mean, you think yeah. about the early two thousands, what had happened. I mean, you know, Facebook came around, the iPhones, the uh, iPhone killed, the Apple iPhone killed the BlackBerry. I mean, it was, 
all, all those things happened while you were in prison. The whole world of technology and social media and all that stuff changed. So now I'm like dependent on, like my projected future depends on how well I can use this MacBook, how well I can <laughs> use this iPhone that I don't know how to use, that I don't have anybody right there that's able to sort of like show me. I'm living with my grandpa. My grandpa is like 95, 96 at the time. Yeah. You know, lives 45 minutes away from the halfway house. So there's like a drive back and forth. So it's really about like, the heck with, you know, trying to do X, Y, and Z, I really need to like double down and focus on and figure this stuff out. Yeah. So you did. So I did. On your personal life, what, what all happened with your personal life is you came home. I know you've got a couple of kids and you're the, what, how did all that yeah. work? So I end up, uh, after I got out of the halfway house shortly, right after I got done with, house arrest and sort of like navigated that whole situation got in a relationship um my the daughters that i got now were four and six at the time and no yeah because you said they're are they teenagers now they're 11 and the one is getting ready to turn 13 so i'm trying to do the math 11 and 13 okay yeah but been together over five years now. Um, they're itty bitty tiny things. Now they're like, they've got their own personalities and they're oh, like yeah. doing their thing. But yeah, so I've got that anchor too, not just like where I wanted to go with like criminal justice reform and like, you know, trying to work for the law firm, trying to master, you know, this, this new technology and the mm -hmm. way this all works. I'm not, I'm no longer working on a prison typewriter, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah. So as things progress, because I know now that you are, um, you're doing your thing in Washington, D.C., and it's a, I mean, it's a great organization. I mean, it's, it's one of the bigger organizations there is that is championing, championing change in all communities. Can you kind of let us know about what all that is? So it really is. Um, I've been working with a stand together trust for like a year now um, in supporting their, like the grant making arm of, you know, stand together is like a broader umbrella that consists of a bunch of independent business capabilities. Um, the trust where I work at um, focuses, we've got a couple of senior fellows that focus on like publishing scholarship, writing op-eds on particular issues, mm -hmm. whether it's secondary education, um, foreign policy, criminal justice reform, whatever. Um, but we also, the, the majority of the work that we do is like partnering with outside partners, um, organizations and stuff that are like actively engaged in this space that are out there trying to like drive change. It's, is it mostly nonprofits or is it for-profit, nonprofit, all profits? Our group works mostly with nonprofits. Um, there's different iterations of Stand Together, like Stand Together Venture Labs that work for with pro, uh, like for-profit corporations. Okay. There's other direct action components of it, like Americans for Prosperity that, you know, are actually out there actively involved in, you know, campaigns, you know, pushing specific legislation and stuff like that. 
Um, my mine is more like on the nonprofit side of it, just partnering with you know groups like Cato Institute, um, you know, yeah. a, a bunch of different folks that are actually actively out there engaging in policy discussions, policy change. Uh, yep, yep, I love it, and I love Josh that you're you're using all those things that you by happenstance learned and became an expert at, and now you're, you're using it for the good. And I, I was so proud yesterday. Uh, Adam Clausen had, had texted me some pictures. He was up there taking some pictures in Washington, DC. And you had sent me the thing of, of the sentencing commission where you were there. I thought there, that's such a great day for justice impacted people, because I think one of the greatest ways that things real change happens is that people like a Josh Boyer, people like Adam Kloss and others, um, there's so many people to name, but that are sitting around the table with other people that are policymakers and letting them know how it really is so that the policies that are getting changed mean something. They're not just talked about. They're, they're, they actually have impact because the people who, sit, who are sitting around the table have lived it. And I think that's such a, it was a it was a great thing yesterday to see that you know you guys didn't even run into each other yesterday but it was it was that you there you were both on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's crazy because most times um, when Adam is in town, we do run into each other. Um, last time he testified from the Sentencing Commission for the you know prior to the Sentencing Commission adopting the new Compassionate Release guidelines. Um, I was there, same thing with the lawyers, my, my clemency lawyer, the lawyers from University of Chicago that were testifying about clients that they have were stash house things and ultimately commits the sentencing commission to sort of like broaden the scope of the criteria that we're seeing now that came effective November 1st. And yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing, you know, to see these things come full circle and not just to have academics sort of figuring stuff out. We, we need them as partners. I'm, I'm absolutely yeah. them, but um, sort of broadening the horizons here to have directly impacted people be involved in this process and sort of drive these policy discussions. Exactly. Drive the policy discussions is what needs to happen. Uh, when you, were you, when you were in that world up on Capitol Hill or, or testifying before a group, representatives or whomever, how, how do you feel like, do you feel, uh, how are you treated? I think that's changed a lot, to be honest with you, Brent. Um, just in between, you know, sort of like midway through the Biden, you know, Biden's first term, uh, conservative attacks on progressive criminal justice reform, sort of like this political polarization that we're seeing or that are shaping these discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it depends on who we're talking about and like how you're received and how you're treated. Um, I would have liked to have thought that if we were going back to 20, you know, the tail end of 2018, when first step became, you know, law and we saw comprehensive reform happen for the first time in you know, decades, I would like to think that it would have been different, but now um, it's difficult. It, it's difficult. Like if we're like with super progressive folks, like left leaning that haven't sort of like grabbed onto this rising crime hysteria, 
without looking at like, hey, look, we just came out of a pandemic. We're seeing record levels of inflation. We're, you know, X, Y, Z. All these other things could be impacting society in a way that sort of like moves the needle on violent crime, yeah. X, Y, Z. Uh, but we're really not seeing that. We're, we find ourselves in an atmosphere that it's like any way that one side can get back to the other. Polarized, yeah. Yep. It's either all yeah. or nothing. You know, nobody yep. comes together and, and says, I'll take a little bit of that and, and everybody can win. What do you think like, you know, I, 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 so many different things. I, I know there's great movement going on in Michigan with Tony Gant and uh, different players of uh, Candy and Milton and, and the nation outside movement where they're trying to get the box removed on um, employment or housing. And do you think that all those things, Josh, have to happen at the, at the local level and move up? Or do you think it could happen at a, at the high level and, and come down? <laughs> right now. And I'm definitely not an expert. I don't want to speak on behalf of the organization, but this is just me directly impacted. Josh sort of like yeah. looking at the, um, it's just me, Brent, justice impacted. Brent. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it, it's really been disheartening, right? Because, um, I got out right after, you know, first up happened right after I got out the possibilities, the yeah, universe, everybody's cheering. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it just really seemed like buy-in was there from both sides and for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And I just think that this, partisan craziness that we're finding ourselves in, you know, between both sides has just. Well, it's not just on, and the thing of it is the unfortunate thing is, is that it's not just on uh, crime or justice reform. It's on everything. It's, it's, you know, it like is. when I was a political science major and I remember, you know, some of the things I read, like when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, you know, two Irishmen by the, at the end of the day, they go have a drink. Tell, tell stories. Now these uh, on people with the other parties, they don't even talk to each other. They, you know, they, they work and then they leave and go back and they, the two aren't even actually um, trying to communicate to find common ground. And that, I think that's the thing that really um, is frustrating because I think there's, there's common ground on, on issues. There, there has to be just like there was with the first step back. And to your point, um, honestly, and this has happened way before I even like came to stand together, but I, I find myself at odds with a lot of the really progressive um, activists for reform. And it's not because, you know, I disagree with their, you know, their policy. It's not because I don't think that there's um, institutional racism, because there is. It's not because that I don't think that certain areas are over policed and like disproportionately representing the criminal justice system right. because they are. Right. Um, it's just that I realize that it doesn't just take getting in a room with folks that you agree with. It doesn't yeah. take going to a conference where everybody agrees with the same thing that you agree with. Yeah. Because if we look at Washington and we look at how divided it is right now, it's about what can we sell both sides of the aisle um, and kind of like what we saw at first step initially, a lot of folks aren't willing to make compromises, right. not just on the progressive side, but because on the, on the conservative side too. And 
when you find yourself in these rooms and in this atmosphere and stuff and trying to navigate this space, unless you're willing to take a hard look at how this is going to sell, not just with your constituents and your colleagues, but on the other side. Yeah. Um, and because we can't have those conversations anymore because stuff's become so polarized. Yeah. I often find myself on the, on the wrong side and leaving a bad taste in people's mouth. And it isn't because I don't, believe in the policy it isn't because i'm not trying to embrace the solutions it's because i realize the the political reality of what we're dealing with and yeah. sometimes i don't i don't feel like my colleagues you know are there yet yeah i think that's probably true i mean because they're the only way that anything gets done in washington is everybody's got to feel like they had a little bit of a win and there's there's no such thing as just pounding somebody in the ground and and you say you won because it, it comes back around and and then nobody gets it so it's 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 a t- and you live in that world. You're in Washington D.C., which is is a, probably the toughest arena there is to get anything done. It is, Josh. I always ask people this, um, and I'm curious what your answer is because you've lived quite the journey. Um, what do you think's your biggest takeaway through all this that you've been through to where you are now? Chart your own path. Um, in prison, especially what I found is, and, you know, I, I've got friends and gangs. I've got a whole bunch of friends and organizations. I'm not speaking down about anything. I mean, because to each their own, but yeah. chart your own path. I found that, you know, just the status quo in prison has a lot of opportunities that are really self-destructive that aren't going to push you in a different direction that better equip you to be, you know, successful when it comes to yeah. being on the other side. On the other side. Man, we've got Pell. You know, they re- they reinstated Pell grants. Now you guys can go to 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 college. There's resources. I didn't have that. It wasn't available yeah. then. Man, and a lot of that's understanding too. If it, the, the, to even understand what's a Pell grant, where do I go get it? How do I apply? What happens next? And and those things need to be connected. No, and and there's. Fortunately, there's a lot of great organizations that are sort of like building out, building that out now, creating the infrastructure and like, hopefully, you know, federal, state, whatever, they're getting that information in there to these guys to realize that where they can go and sort of like what's possible. But man, the one thing that I've found that benefited me more than, let's say, a guy that would had 17 years out here that would have been out. I had all the time in the world in there. I didn't have all the tools, but if you're motivated, if you want to do something and you even just have a few resources on the outside that you can, you know, get information about the law, whatever else you're interested in, not to say that it's going to be immediately transitionable to like making money as soon as you get out. But the more you can, I spent eight to 10 hours a day in a law library and probably the rest of the time in my cell, writing briefs, reading published decisions. And the takeaway is that it's hard for people out here. Unless you have something, getting an entry level job now these days in this economy and thinking that you're going to just like climb the ladder or somebody's going to hand you a golden ticket. It's not going to happen. You have to be committed. It doesn't start when you get out. It does start a few months before you get out. You have to start from day one, realizing that you were on the wrong path. 
that you want to do something different and you got to be committed. And I love that because this goes into over 250 <laughs> prisons across the nation. And the, what you just said was wisdom, wisdom of what you've got to do. And it's not easy, but it can be done if you just commit, stay committed to it, stay on the right path. <laughs> yep. Uh, Josh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the easiest way to do that? Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. And it's all under Josh Boyer, I think, isn't <clears throat> it? Or Joshua Boyer. Yep. Joshua usually. Yep. Um, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, speaking of social media, loving you guys, uh, with your likes and comments, follow the show, subscribe on YouTube. Uh, I love the reviews of, we've gotten a bunch of reviews here lately. That's really pumped up the show. And I really appreciate that. If you want to find out more about me, what I've got going on, it's brentcassie.com. It's with a T Y, not a D Y. Um, my whole life, I was hoping Sean and David would show up and say, Hey, we're all Cassidy's, but no, it's a T Y. <laughs> um, and, uh, as I used to say, when I was, uh, writing my emails back and forth from Leavenworth, stay strong. I'll do the same. Josh Boyer. Thanks so much for being here today and sharing your story. I think it's going to help some people out there just hearing it. Definitely glad to sit here and chat with you and look, man, you know, just, uh, Stay committed. Do your thing. Love it. Nightmare success in and out.